0: Hello, and welcome back to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. Uh, we're getting towards the end of October. Uh, CityWire has its big flagship event in Berlin in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Agnes and I will be there, and we'll report back on that in, when we get back. Uh, my name's Richard Lander, uh, and as I said, Agnes Foot is with us, Nisha Long, and Frank Talbot. Uh, and we're going to start off with Frank Talbot. Welcome, Frank. Uh, and you're going to tell us about what's happening in the global small and medium-sized company sector.
1: So yeah, as you quite rightly point out, hello, Um, I'm going to talk about uh, global small and medium-sized company managers. Uh, This is actually still a rather niche uh, area relative to single country smaller company sectors. We're tracking something in the region of 200 managers worldwide from a pool of 17,000 that we track globally. So in many ways, that's because there hasn't been a whole lot of demand for these type of strategies because single country, smaller companies, managers are often seen as having a better chance of outperforming. There's good logic to this. you know. The set of companies that you need to look at as a global small cap manager is dauntingly huge. Um, so finding the right opportunity is a challenge uh, and being able to beat the index on top of that, again, is, is difficult. But the percentage of manager outperforming is still fairly reasonable in this category at 50%. Though that is lower, notably, than most of the other small cap sectors, it's still a good base for a fund selector to start from and pick the, the fund that they're interested in. little health warning before I progress further. Investing in small cap companies is by its very nature a risky prospect and more susceptible to global growth expectations. Uh, both good and bad than, than the large cap brethren. Uh, and as growth expectations are looking not quite as rosy as they were recently, six months ago, this might not be the right vintage timing for you to go in. Nevertheless, small caps are very enticing. You know The world is going through a rapid pace of change in order to meet its net zero goals. And a lot of the innovation is going to come from these small and medium sized companies. So the right manager can be a big win here. And Allocating to a global small cap manager sort of takes some of the stress off picking five or six different funds. You you can allocate to one with the confidence, hopefully, that they're going to do a better job than a passive will be able to. Um, The first fund I want to highlight is the American Century Global Small Cap Equity Fund, run by AA rated Trevor Gerwich and Federico Laffin. Uh, This is a strategy that's been available in the US for some time, but launched as an Irish domiciled fund in 2019 and has dominated the index and the average manager in this category uh, in terms of positions it has a few names you'll know but most uh you won't just by nature of how small they are howden joinery here in the uk is one that stands out as a, as a company that i'm aware of biggest stake is a position in ryman hospital properties a us-based real estate company that you guessed it specializes in medical facilities uh, has done well uh during the pandemic um in terms of the average market cap, it sits very much between the mid and small cap here. So it's on the margin. It's overweight tech, consumer discretionary, both of which have been beneficial to the portfolio. It goes with the approach of many smaller holdings uh, to limit the risk with nothing in excess of 1.5% uh, in one company. So that that's, that's an approach that many of these smaller companies funds take, kind of like bond funds. You know, You spread it around just in case one of them doesn't make it and collapses. The other fund that I, I think is worth noting is the Aberdeen World Smaller Companies Fund run by Stephen Doherty. He's actually been in this game uh, a long time. I remember when he first took on this fund back in 2012. Uh, it's a steady outperformer in this category. It's currently plus rated, but don't let that you know, dissuade you from being interested. He's on so many portfolios that just getting a plus is fairly impressive as we average it across, across the piece top holding is actually in both of these funds. It's a 3% stake in Cornet Digital, which is a global leader in textile printing. It's got people very excited. Uh, it's doubled in value this year. Uh, it's really building on that idea of uh, of 3D printing and and creating uh, inputs via digital.
2: You started by saying that traditionally it been an area that, that, that there wasn't a lot of interest in because you know, the idea of global small and mid-cap is is a challenge or has been a challenging one for some people's allocations. If you're working regionally, then, you know, where does global small and mid-cap fit in? You have all this stuff around lack of analyst coverage and hence inefficiencies, obviously as true on a global scale as it is country by country. But I just wondered to what extent you thought increased interest in global small and mid-cap is a function of increased interest in Global themes and thematics generally, because now actually I'm hearing in some quarters that people are moving back to regional allocations. So uh, that would seem to work against that rise of of global small and mid caps. So it's quite a complicated question, but I guess the the important point is do you think there's a link between uh, the rise of themes and the rise of this sector?
1: I think the two are certainly linked, and the most successful funds have certainly tapped into the areas that have seen the most interest, you know, as as we've shifted to more of a thematic approach to investing. It's interesting that you say that you think feel that people are moving back to more regional bias.
2: Well, that's I, what I hear. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what I've been starting to hear. I,
1: I, only, I only say it's interesting in that I think there's a, a lot of kind of get away from domestic bias. The world is moving in different speeds depending on where you are. And I think that's the attraction of going with a global portfolio, be that large or small cap. Uh, relying on someone else to make the decisions and adapt to the, the you know, pretty fast pace of change we've experienced in the past few years. So that's a long-winded way, way of saying uh, yes and no.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Can I ask you a question, Frank? I mean, uh, small cap means different things in different countries. I mean, just looking in Britain, it goes up to 30 million to 950 million. And the States are going to be as big as $2 billion, which, you know, would get, might get you in the FTSE 100 over here. Uh, So, yeah, it might be. Uh, So that one, and I've got a supplementary, as they say in Parliament, uh, and that's uh, small, you know, small caps are really research intensive. Uh, They're covered by far fewer analysts uh, and, uh, you know, so... Doesn't that make it really hard to be a global small stroke mid-cap manager? You've, you've got to do your, you know, the hard yards, not just across one market, but across many.
1: Definitely. And it's no coincidence that the two funds I flagged up, two top performing funds, are from large investment houses with the resource and the analyst community internally to be able to provide them with the, the opportunities. And that, they, they, those two are definitely linked. In terms of size, uh, yeah, one person's small cap is another person's mid-cap. Um, depending on where you are. But I think uh, I don't really have a good answer for that, actually, Richard. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) No, that's all right. You don't have to have, you know, you're not the oracle, Frank. You don't have to have the answer for everything. Thanks. One of the
1: reasons, let me sort of just say, one of the reasons I've picked these two funds is both have outperformed over the past three years and the past one year. And I think that's important Is the wind has definitely come out of the sails of the equity rally, so if you're still above water over the past year, in uh, the shorter term, it should bode well for your ability to ride out what I think many anticipate to be choppier waters ahead.
0: So Nisha, you're just back from a break, mm-hmm. and I hope it was a good one. Uh, and you've been looking at the SDFR. Yeah, so SFDR. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Funds. Uh, I hate all these macronyms. Uh, What's been going on there in terms of global equity? Yeah,
3: problem? so I was thinking about talking about this because obviously we do have our flagship Berlin event coming up in the next two weeks, but also COP26, um, which does you know feed into this completely. With you know the four main goals of the COP26 being, for example, to adapt to protect communities and natural habitats. So you're looking at ecology around that, and that takes me on nicely to. Um, The flows that we've been seeing going into ecology type funds and most of these funds in terms of the eu sfdr which is the sustainable disclosure regulations um, from the eu that most of these are article 9 funds which are uh, ones which cover um they have sustainable goals as their main objective and um the amount of money going into these funds has you know continue to be very strong over the last couple of years. So start of the pandemic and continuing now into that. And I think with COP26 coming um, in as well, you know, there is a rush to go into these funds and some of them have performed very well indeed. So it's not just the rush of going into these kind of funds, which are mostly environmental um, so it doesn't really, you know, have the S, the social side, or the governance. Well, it will have the governance, but it's mostly climate related. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple of funds um, that are still doing very well and managed by really good managers. Um, so uh, Article 9 fund, year to date, um, the Nordea Global Climate and Environment Fund has taken in 2.85 billion euros Um in that time and it continues to do well plus rated thomas Sorensen manages that fund and yeah as i said continues to take the money but also has the performance with it um and also
0: i mean sorry just uh sorry to interrupt but this is this is sort of catnip for sfdr funds if i've got that right uh because there's lots of small environmental breakthrough companies that they can pick and choose from. Yeah, there
3: is. I mean the ones I've mentioned, they do tend to go for the larger companies. Um, so they do have their research, you know, behind that. And as it does go with the global, for example, small and mid cap. So with these funds to be an article eight or even an article nine fund, there is a lot of research that has to go behind it. So just having the EU SFDR labeling them as Article eight or article nine, you still have to do your own due diligence and research behind it to make sure that it's aligned with your own interests and beliefs, you know, within these funds. So just because a fund is an Article 9 doesn't mean that, you know, it's suitable for yourself. For example, a lot of these Article 9 funds have a lot of tech companies in there. Some people might think great. Some people might think no, because on the social side of things, that so we've seen a lot of, you know, regulatory privacy issues, etc., from some tech companies. So there's still, you know, a fine line between. What is an Article 9 fund? What is an Article 8 fund? So it's still, you know, very resource intensive to look at these companies. And then if you start going into the smaller cap as well within these funds, you have to look at it even more. It's it's probably double the amount of research that you have to do. And as you said, you know, analyst coverage isn't great in small and medium companies. But then if you have this layer on top of it with Article 9 or Article 8, you know, it's a lot harder. So, you know, the bigger companies are doing well and, So mentioning Nordea, it's a big company. Another one is Bailey Gifford, who's doing very well in this area uh, with the Positive Change Fund, with Kate Fox and Michelle Akif and two other managers as well, with AAA rated all of them. So one of my latest research has shown, which I did for the Selector magazine, which is for our European audience, um, I did look at um, how these funds which were labeled Article 9, 8, and also those which haven't been classified yet in terms of performance. And Article 9 funds have, you know, done very well in terms of performance. Now, you can put that down to the kind of themes that they've been investing in, for example, technology, you know, the pharma type companies. Um, But also, there are quite a few funds, you might be surprised to hear this, that are Article 8 and are in China. So, for example, the JPM China Fund, which has taken in a lot of money, about 3.84 um, billion since the start of this year. It's an Article 8 fund, so it has some kind of ESG credentials behind it. But some people might question that on the you know, environmental maybe, but on the tell, social side, yeah, how? Yeah. Yeah, how? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. You really need to still look under the bonnet of these funds, even though it's labels. It's a label. It's a stamp at the end of the day. You still need to do your normal research processes and due diligence to see what they are actually invested in, and if you're comfortable in investing.
2: Would you, in you know, Anisha, I think you've taken the lid off a very interesting box of tricks there, because uh, Richard started by mentioning our Berlin event next week. And one of the things that's coming up in the discussion sessions there is, is this whole subject of Article 8 and 9, uh, what it means and what people are taking it to mean. And that I've heard quite a few people complaining that some asset managers have simply labelled all of their funds Article 8. which which makes the whole thing kind of meaningless. Somebody who runs a big and successful China bond fund said to me they'd looked at uh, getting it designated Article 8 and decided that they wouldn't because they didn't feel they'd have any credibility if they stood up in front of investors or the media saying this fund is Article 8. So they decided not to. But that then leaves you with the question of what are these legacy Article 6 funds? There are some types of assets that are not going to be really realistically, uh, um, you know, credible as Article 8 or Article 9 strategies. So, so that's a big unresolved um, issue, I think. Uh, somebody also gave me a figure, which I haven't checked, but which sounds right to me, between 20 and 25% of existing products are classed as 8 or 9, but 60% of the flows are currently going into Article 8 and Article 9 funds. So, so that starts to tilt the marketplace pretty significantly. And there's also a trend that I think is gathering pace where the biggest fund buying units, the big fund selection units, are starting to say, look, do you know what? This Article 8 and 9 isn't really helpful to us. As you say, Nisha, we'll do our own analysis, thank you very much, or we'll have our own internal categorizations. Uh, And that then makes the whole thing a bit of a waste of time. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of angst and anxiety still to work its way through the system around articles eight and nine. And I really wish they could have found a snappier name for them as well.
3: <laughs> I think as well, there's a, it's still a second leg of the SFDR to go through, which has been pushed to January. But now I've even heard that it's going to be moved to July. So there are still companies who are still classifying their funds. And all those um, companies that have labeled just say, a broad brush article nine or eight funds in that, you know, um, how what they are going to find is that they're going to be held accountable. They will have those tick boxes to you know, have. So at the end of the day, from January onwards, you might see those companies which have labeled all their funds eight and nine not being there anymore, not labeling them eight and nine anymore, being classed well, as a, you know, yeah, a
2: six. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great I, point. Sorry, Anisha, carry on. Yeah, no, that's it. <laughs> but I was going to well, say, okay. just, just we- to say, Richard, I think that's a really great point because, as I understand it, the yeah. compulsory disclosure part of this has been delayed anyway. So, yeah. so actually, what we're seeing at the moment, there's a risk that the providers, in trying to get on board with the regulation, are getting ahead of their clients. And I think if you've got asset managers who are kind of, you know, rushing to jump on the eight and nine bandwagon, or feeling that they have to because the regulator is about to, you know, get tough on them then – and the buyers aren't totally up to speed with what that means and especially what it means for them in terms of constructing their own portfolios. You've got a mismatch. So I think that's another potential tension that that we're going to hear a
0: lot more about. So hold on. You can – I could start a fund and say it's Article 8 – is that not right quite, or does someone have to? You still
3: have to follow certain rules and, um, you know, principles that they, that it's adhered to. Yeah. But I think where the um, the red herring is around, I think, the Article 8, which actually covers, you know, those funds which promote environmental and social characteristics, but they don't have to have those as their main objective. And there it is in itself. It does not have to have it as a main objective. And I think in that, it's just so wide open that is, you know, that you can have, you know, yeah, very fuzzy. And yeah. Know, mean, article 8 is article nine.
2: yeah, And, and also, that because, because the compulsory uh, disclosure isn't there yet, you can say, this is Article 8. And, and it's really quite difficult for people to test that. I mean, presumably, if you, Richard, if you launched a fund right now, and you decided to label it Article 8, and you hadn't, you weren't totally on top of the, the categorization and the regulatory part of it, you'd be doing that with a view to getting in line by the time you have to get the, do the compulsory right. disclosure, okay, and I think that's part of what the issue is here. But but you know, nevertheless, it's all a lot less clear cut than I think most people would like it to be.
3: No, I think yeah. um, and, uh, um, next year. And if you're going to. I Sorry, think next Lisa, year, no. I think, you know, once everything is in place and these ballparks aren't moved continuously, you know, asset management groups have to get that act together, you know, have them classified in the correct order. And, you know, we do have, for example, the FCA has, you know, their three principles as well that they've, um, you know, talked about, about the design delivery and exposure. So you've got the EU SFDR, the UK kind of version of that as well. So if you start, you know, amalgamating all those together, in your own research, you start getting a better picture. And I think, you know, from two years before, you know, the analysis I was doing, it was tough, because you didn't have these either. So, you know, how do you get your selection of 1000s and 1000s of funds whittled down? This is a starting point, you know, I'm not going to say that it's a bad it's not a bad thing at all. It's great. It's moving in the right direction. But I just don't think it's moving fast enough.
0: We're, we're not there. But there's also
2: we're, another we're, point that I think is interesting here, that and time will tell which of these is, is the reality. So if 60% of the flows are going into 20% of the funds, is that driven by the fact that asset managers have latched on to the fact that ESG is a great marketing story, or is it driven by the fact that their investors are coming to them and saying, look, we only want ESG-friendly, climate change-friendly strategies? So, so which one of those is currently driving that tilt in flows, I think is going to make a very big difference to what fund ranges look like in the future.
3: Also, I do think it's because of where the performance is as well. I think um, it's not just because of the ESG credentials. It is, as I mentioned, you know, China equity funds are also in there, but that's, they were the main performance of last year. But also renewable energy funds, clean energy funds, they were the drivers of returns last year. And that's where the money was going. You know, so I think we need a bit more time to see if that was the actual mm. case, that everyone is going to ESG type strategies, or is it where the market was taking them?
0: People have got the uh, desire to get cleaner strategies. That's where the money goes. The prices go up. They perform fantastically until they don't. A bit like China, really, but, You know, as we've seen in the past, the past few months. Uh, on which note, we will wrap up. Uh, Angus, Nisha and Frank, thank you very much. Uh, there's so much to discuss here. This will keep us going for several hundred more editions of the Ratings Radar Show. Uh, but for now, we're going to sign off. And as promised, uh, we'll be back from Berlin in a couple of weeks, where no doubt these issues and more will be discussed. So until then, goodbye.